Welcome to Listen by Jean Ginsberg. This audio experience and podcast is all about social media, digital marketing, entrepreneurship, and interviews with top entrepreneurs in the digital and social space. I'm your host, Jean Ginsberg, digital marketing expert, number one best-selling author, and award-winning entrepreneur. I will be sharing with you strategies, tips, and tactics on how to grow your business and your social media following. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Very excited today. We have Jonathan Cronstead, who I actually met through YPO. How's it going? It's going great. And for everybody listening, you can just call me Jay Cron. My last name's complicated. The nickname is 100x easier and it's for friends. And now since we're all friends, you get to call me Jay Cron. So very cool. We're all friends now. Well, welcome, Jay Cron. And how long have you been part of YPO? Thanks. So I joined YPO, I think it was about nine years ago. And so the way that I actually found out about YPO was I was working for Fletcher Jones Motorcars in Newport Beach, largest Mercedes Benz dealer in the world. And I, at the time, was probably around 19, 20. I was working my way through college in the business development center. And event came in, appetizer trays, lots of delicious things, a group of people just test driving cars. And I was like, these people look like a lot of fun. And someone said, oh, yeah, they're YPO. I was like, I have no idea what that means. And I'm 20, 21 at the time. So go home, Google it. Wow, sounds so cool. I can't wait to qualify. Then at around age 32, I qualified and immediately applied because I was like, this looks like a lot of fun. And, and not to mention the fact I had amazing parents growing up, but the financial acumen and business acumen was not necessarily at the level of what I really hoped for. And, you know, my parents were like, hey, we, we know what we know. We can recommend books, but, you know, we've not done what you're trying to do. So YPO for me was a network of really finding those mentors that, you know, I was really seeking out. And uh, so it's now been... Gosh, better part of nine years in YPO. Yeah, I'm 41 now, joined when I was 32. So uh, it's been a minute. That's awesome. Yeah, I, same same story with me. Like my parents did not come from that background, like the business acumen background. They all had like regular jobs, which was fine. But like my my path was definitely different. So it's interesting. Like I have a few people in my chapter who are like, oh, my dad used to be in YPO. And like, so they have this like long legacy of like, you know, 30 years of being in you know, one way or another in YPO. And so it's it's kind of cool to, to see that. But yes, same thing for me. Like I joined totally, you know, different experience coming back from, you know, background of like just my parents having regular jobs and, and having these mentors who have gone through a lot of these things that I'm like, that it's been amazing to learn from. Yeah, I think every generation of parents, you know, the the goal is always that whatever the starting point was for you, you've advanced that starting point for the next generation. And so I think for for my parents, it was, you know, they they reached kind of VP levels in in their positions, uh, never really got above that VP level. And so I think this is an opportunity where just like you were talking about, I, I hope that my daughter chooses to go down the the YNG path and kind of gets exposed to other kids that are ambitious and pursuing life on those levels. So it's certainly something that my goal would be just one more iteration ahead for the start and then she gets to do the same. So that's great. Well, usually my first question is background. So we can have a little bit of your background about how you learn about YPO and, and working at the dealership, but tell us a little bit about how your your background and how it feeds into what you're doing now. Sure. So, I mean, I always joke that God watches out for fools and little children, and I'm pretty much half of each. And I think my background really shows that a lot of serendipity, a lot of hard work, a lot of 
great mentors along the way. But if we go all the way back to when I would say formative years started, so moved to Southern California when I was 15. Dad's job transfer brought us out of the Midwest, Northwest suburbs of Chicago. And it was kind of one of those experiences where coming out of the Midwest, I would have said we were upper middle class. You know, I would have felt very comfortable in that in that description of where we were in life. And then moving to Southern California, all of a sudden where I was in Chicago, an S-class Mercedes may as well have been a spaceship. And then you move to Southern California and an S-class is kind of like a Newport Beach Honda Accord. And so very early on, starting out in high school, I became very aware that business and growing in business was going to be an important path for me. So Throughout high school, any sales job I could find. My first job, 16 years old, telemarketing for a timeshare company, all those sweepstake leads that people drop in cars and malls, I got those and I called you to come to a presentation. So fell in love with sales at a very early age, took any sales job I could get throughout high school, whether it was telemarketing for timeshares or vocabulary building tapes. For those of you that remember the Sky Mall catalog, whether it was Verbal Advantage or Leo Lowndes Conversational Confidence, a lot of phone sales stuff in my past. and then actually my first mentor on my way into college. And it was a time where he had a black Lamborghini Roadster. His name was Steve James. And I dropped a business card into the roof of his car and basically just said on the back, like, nice car, would love to know how you got it, sign my name. And got a call back from a guy with a British accent, said, hi, is Jen there? And I was like, no, no one here by that name hung up. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was probably the guy. So called him back and he's like, oh yeah, thanks. You know, I don't really do any mentoring. I'm really, really busy. So I called him once a week for eight weeks. And finally on the eighth phone call, he picks up. He's like, look, if I have lunch with you, will you just stop calling me? And I said, yeah, totally, no problem. So we end up having lunch, becoming fast friends. And uh, Steve's now been a mentor for me for now 22 years. First thing he said to me is like, look, if you're going to achieve any success, you got to learn how to sell. And I mean, really sales. So he introduced me to the GM over at Fletcher Jones. That's how I ended up at Fletcher Jones and started working my way through college, then ended up in mortgage finance because two years after that, got tired of selling cars to guys my age that I couldn't afford. And they were in the mortgage business. So get into the mortgage business, Start out as a loan officer broking, brokering in California, ended up as the VP of sales, banking on our own lines in 26 states, thought I had life figured out. I was making way more money than I ever should. And as you could imagine, as a mid-20s guy, I did all of the cartoon character things that people who don't understand what to do with money do. So bought 100% financed, bunch of real estate. 2008 rolls around, jobs gone, real estate's underwater. And by 2009, I went from being a multimillionaire to being negative multimillion bankrupt. So a very hard adjustment. And then it was like, well, I'm bankrupt, late 20s. What do I do now? So got into this world of online marketing, found out about it originally through a guy named Dan Kennedy and ended up having an opportunity to meet a guy through Dan Kennedy named Joe Polish, who runs high-level executive masterminds and think tanks in Phoenix, Arizona. And called up Joe and said, hey, I want to learn how to be a marketer. And they said, great. He's $25,000 a day. I said, wonderful. I'm bankrupt. So I'm going to give you $500 for five minutes. And if Joe doesn't want to be my friend, we'll part as friends. He ended up taking my $500. We became fast friends, ended up getting mentored by him, living in his Arizona office for three months. Did the same thing with a gentleman named Matt Basak in Atlanta, learning the online side for another six months got hired out of there by a guy named Chet Holmes, author of The Ultimate Sales Machine. If you haven't read it, you should. Helped him build Business Breakthroughs International, which got acquired by Tony Robbins. It's now the business mastery brand that Tony has. Hired out of there by Traffic Geyser, a software company in San Diego, learned online product launches. Glazer Kennedy coming full circle, which was the company behind Dan Kennedy. 
fortunate enough then to be CEO of Digital Marketer, an unbelievable online training empire in Austin, Texas. Then from there went into the MLM world for a couple of years, then into Success Magazine, helping them launch their digital education initiatives. Finally landing with my best friend, Kenny Reeder, co-founder and CEO of Kajabi. And I joined as partner and president about seven years ago. And then two years ago, stepped out of operations into a board director position after completing a growth equity round with Spectrum Equity. And most recently, uh, we raised $550 million on a $2 billion valuation led by Tiger Global. And the company now powers roughly $2 billion a year in educational products for all of the users that use the platform. So kind of turned into a thing and that's where you find me today. Wow. I There's so many brands and names that I'm very familiar with. Um, Joe Polish and Dan Kennedy and um, of course, Kajabi. I've well, been- everyone knows the way to be an ideal podcast guest is to get all of the name dropping out of the way really early. <laughs> just, just start with it and be done. Well, yes, because I come from that um, space to the online marketing space. And now I have a digital marketing agency, but like I learn a lot of that marketing, sales. Yeah. Like they taking a lot of those courses back like 10 years ago when I, before I started my agency. So it's kind of funny that you, that you mentioned that. And then well, you, you probably, you've probably been a part of the evolution of the industry. So for those of you listening that aren't familiar with what Kajabi is, what Shopify is to e-commerce Kajabi is to digital education. So Kajabi allows you to market, sell, and deliver any type of online learning or digital education product. Kajabi started when this industry largely was still workbooks, CDs, DVDs sent through the mail. And it was one of those moments where it was like, why isn't this happening online? Why, Why aren't people able to consume this online? And so seeing it go from how do we just replace workbooks, CDs, and DVDs to now seeing nearly every thought leader in the world building an online newsletter, offering courses, offering coaching, offering opportunities for people to connect with who they want to learn from. It's truly been one of the most amazing seasons of my career. Getting to see the transformative power of entrepreneurship through digital education has been amazing. I mean, I'm very much a person that, you know, I'm not very political. I think entrepreneurship is the only powerful force in the world. And given how broken politics is, it might be the only thing that saves it. So it's been a lot of fun to see that evolution take place. Yeah, I think Dan Kennedy would refer to audio, like to like tape cassettes back in the day before this whole like online, you know, course education, digital education started and like with brands like Kajabi. But it's funny how to think about like, yeah, how did you disseminate all that information? Like if you were an expert at something back like, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Back back then it was you either went to live events and spoke on stage. You uh, did audio teleconferences. There used to be a product back in the day called Instant Teleseminar where you'd literally call in and listen. And then it moved to audio tapes. Then it moved to CDs. Then it moved to DVDs. Then it kind of all went online. And, uh, you know, I think even now they're probably removing, I know they already got rid of tape decks in cars and probably next up is that CD drive in cars because- Nobody uses it anymore. So yeah, it's it's all online today. And and I think it's interesting though that regardless of the medium, what's new isn't true. And what's true probably isn't that new. And when you look at even the marketing campaigns that all of us are responding to today, those are the exact same campaigns that were run in Success Magazine in 1902. They're the same campaigns that were run in the Sears and Roebuck catalog prior to that. The human psychology and the motivation that drives it hasn't changed. The technology has, but to think that we've changed or that we're that much different or that much smarter, we're exactly the same. Although I would say, you know, TikTok videos, they're 
the marketing message is probably there, but the medium I think has changed in what what I think people call successful or what they respond to today, right? I think anyone who wants to focus on vanity metrics would say it's changed. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, you didn't have view count when you were sending out direct mail necessarily, but if you're still backing out a campaign to did what I did result in money, it's always going to come down to, are you aggregating attention? What next step are you asking for? And how are you measuring the success of that process? And whether it was Pony Express delivering letters or whether it's TikTok, you know, it's, it's all the same stuff. Absolutely. That's true. It's, the message is still the same. It's just how it's like packaged up, right? In different formats, you know, maybe 10 years ago it was it's meta, now it's TikTok. Next yeah, digital months. digital has a nasty habit of declaring mediums dead only to see them resurrect themselves. You know, digital claim that they killed the notebook only to see Moleskine do really well. They claim that they killed records only to see vinyl come back in a big way. I'm sure near now, you know, they've killed mail, but you know, mail's coming back. So I think it's one of those things that anytime somebody's telling you a medium is dead and something has changed, Odds are they're selling you something. It might be something great, but you know it's still part of a sales campaign. I feel like mail is coming back because it's such a, a uncommon way to get something. So it's I think it is actually something that is much more prevalent these days. So okay, so tell me, tell us about Kajabi. I mean, because it's it's grown a lot. Like I said, I've used Kajabi for our clients' work, but would love to learn, you know, how how they get started and then how did you guys grow it to. Yeah, absolutely. So Kajabi was started approximately 13 years ago. And I actually knew the founders of Kajabi about six months into their journey. They actually hired me as a consultant. And it was a lot of fun in those very, very, very early days. I worked with them for about six months and they actually fired me to work with a guy named Frank Kern, who's another consultant who's shinier and far more attractive. So Frank, if you happen to be listening, you're better looking than me. And they ended up working with Frank and they hired me back for a two week period as the VP of business development. I then left to become CEO of digital marketer. So the way Kenny and I joke about our story is, you know, they fired me, I quit. And then when I joined for the third time, third time was the charm and uh, it worked out wonderfully for all of us. But so 13 years ago, Kajabi was the first company to offer an opportunity that if you needed what essentially was a combination of a marketing automation platform and a learning management system and offered it all in one in a hosted atmosphere in the cloud where you could just basically run your whole business. And that platform called Kajabi Classic carried the growth of the company up until 2015. 2015 was one of the most interesting inflection points in the company because Kenny really looked at what then was Kajabi Classic, now is, is gone, replaced with what was new Kajabi, now just Kajabi. But basically in 2015, Kenny said, you know, this platform was amazing. What it's done has been incredible. However, we need to go bigger and broader. The previous Kajabi was only about course delivery. So think content, member management, course experience, nothing else. And Kenny really saw a future where people would need all of those tools. They would need the marketing tools. They would need the content tools. They would need their website, their landing pages, their email capture, marketing automation, all of the pieces of this business that back then you would need to go and cobble things together, connect them via APIs, hope for the best. So 2015 new Kajabi comes out and essentially cannibalizes Kajabi classic by design. But nonetheless, it's still one of those moments where I have to give Kenny credit because having that vision to say, we're going to literally cannibalize the thing that's feeding the whole business to build this other thing takes, takes a pretty big set of balls to make a call like that. So I, I look back on that as one of the most unique inflection points in the company. This also coincided with was a very big growth period in the industry. You saw more and more people saying, 
I want a business that I care about. I have this passion that could be a great side hustle. You saw a lot of those societal trends coming alongside what was a company that had begun that industry evolution on the uh, digital product side. And they both grew very, very well. So we kind of moved into growth mode. I joined the company in 20, uh, 2016. And right around then, we were at the time $6 million in ARR, about 25 team members. And it really was, you know, everything's moving, the road's rising to meet us. You know, we, we got to take this thing to its limits. So we really invested heavily in the capabilities of the platform in the marketing that we were doing, in the customer experience side of it, because we also operated in an industry where most people were trying to do less. You know, it was sort of like, okay, we have a knowledge base. And it's like, well, we have a knowledge base too, but you probably are going to need some email ticket systems and opportunities to engage with customer support. Then when everybody started adding email ticket systems, we added live chat. Then when other people started to add live chat, we made our live chat available 24-7. Then when others started to add live chat, we then hired dedicated customer success representatives that are able to really work with people to get their businesses online. So it really became a game for us of keeping our North Star metric as customer success. We have a program in our business called the Kajabi Hero Program, which was our way of building recognition into what's normally a very lonely journey of entrepreneurship, where it's a lot of screen time. You know, you're there, you're in front of the screen, your friends and family are like, why are you spending so much time on this? Nobody makes money online. So the Kajabi Hero Program was our opportunity to recognize people and encourage them to share what they were doing. It started with a t-shirt and has now grown into a multi-tiered recognition program that allows people to be recognized for achievements up to you know seven figures and beyond in their business. We also then had our support and recognition programs feeding into what we call our referral engine. This is the Kajabi Partner Program, where people are able to refer people to the platform and get compensated for doing so. So if you think about that kind of viral network effect or the flywheel of a business, we were in a business where anyone who was consuming a course at some point would realize they could probably teach a course. And as a result, they would then have the opportunity to refer people to that platform and the cycle would repeat. So really what we unearthed on the marketing side, on the customer success, customer experience side, and then on the recognition and referral engine at Kajabi, those were some of the foundational pieces that allowed us to continue scaling aggressively. And then when we partnered with Spectrum Equity, I think that's kind of what moved us into the realm of, okay, it's big kid business time. And thankfully we did because they partnered with us just right as COVID was starting. And all of a sudden the world wakes up and it's no longer, hey, I can get to digital when I get to digital. It became oh my gosh, I need digital, I need it yesterday. And thankfully we were built for that, went into COVID with approximately 80 team members, exited COVID with over 400. So that's kind of some of the nuance of, of that journey and we can drill into any part of it that you'd like. I love that story. It's true, at that time during COVID, I mean, a lot of the digital-based businesses experienced so much growth. I mean, I'm sure your content creators experienced growth, you guys experienced growth. And then I know like, our digital agency experience growth. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to know Amazon and Jeff Bezos, I know, experience a lot of growth. So it's kind of crazy to think how just um, what the kind of change that happened and how you were poised for that change. What would you say is the biggest challenge then now for your industry? Is it is it related to AI or is it something else? You know, there's a lot of people that are worried about AI and I, for one, am just not. And I'll tell you why, because I, you can't make a statement like that today without backing it up. 
I don't think AI is going to replace a creator. I don't think AI is going to replace your job, but I think people that know how to leverage AI do have the potential to replace creators and replace your job. And so what I mean by that is if it was only about information, we would never have any creators because every ounce of information is available anywhere in any format imaginable. I can go find out how to get in the best shape of my life via YouTube, via a blog post, via a medium article, via an audible book, via video. I mean, I can find it in any format. So what I think the information revolution kind of brought us was twofold. The goal of the information revolution was to make information available to everyone in the world. That worked for a little bit. Then what it brought us is immense overwhelm. It brought us disinformation, misinformation. It brought us a fear or an uncertainty of who to trust. And so I think that as you look at AI, as you look at deep fake technology, as you look at what AI can become, I think AI is going to be the next iteration of, I, I have everything available at my fingertips, but I'm paralyzed by choice. The Paradox of Choice book really outlines this well. I think it's the same thing. My wife and I joke about it all the time. You know, we've got Netflix, we've got Prime Video, we've got Apple TV, we've got literally every channel, Netflix, everything imaginable to watch. And yet you feel like there's nothing on. I have the entire catalog of music from the entire world on my phone. I feel like I don't really know what to listen to. So I think that as you look at our industry, the creators that learn how to leverage AI to scale effectively, to take care of some of the, the rote blocking and tackling that is necessary, those are going to be the people that advance the fastest. But at the end of the day, our world is going to be exactly what it's always been. People want to know, like, and trust who they're doing business with. Authenticity is going to be a currency because everyone's aware that AI is here. So who is this person I'm connecting with? What are they really like? Are, are they somebody that I want shepherding me on this journey? Have they done it before? Because I think what AI can give you is AI can give you a recipe. AI will not make you a chef. And that's the key difference. AI can give you the playbook, but if you've never been on the field or played the game, that information is only going to be contextualized as effectively something that's giving you the playbook can do. So I think it's a great tool. I think it's going to massively accelerate what our capabilities are, but I don't think it's replacing anybody just yet. And that's really why, as you look at Kajabi and our offering, we are trying to find the most elegant ways to incorporate AI into the areas that we believe are amplifiers, catalysts, accelerants, but we're not asking somebody to just show up at the platform and say, hey, can you do me a favor? Press the button that makes a weight loss course that I've never done, I've never taken, and I want to sell it to others. Because quite frankly, that's bullshit. Like, you know, if you haven't done it, you shouldn't be teaching it. And so the last thing I want is a whole bunch of creators that haven't done it now teaching it and teaching it powered via AI. That's just terrible. What if it's just the AI teaching the course without even the human being? <laughs> I think it's I think it's possible, but it's like, I mean, you know, let, let's I mean, let's talk about it, you know, from from your perspective, Gene. Like let's say you and I we want to learn how to lose weight, get in shape. You know, you clearly don't need to do that. I do. I've got kind of a body that looks like it's body by in and out. For those of you that know in and out cheeseburger here in California, I don't know that I'm going to trust a robot because a robot's never been hungry. A robot's never struggled with cravings. A robot's never had to wonder, do I drink? Do I not drink? A robot's never had to say, do I get up early and work out so I can spend time with my daughter? Or do I try and fit in, you know, getting my step count up or sleeping better or balancing my hormones? Like it's not going to give you a human response. I mean, everyone knows how to lose weight. It's eat less, move more. And that's all the AI is going to give you. But if eat less, move more was enough, we'd probably all be in cover model shape, but we're not. So I think absent that human element, 
there's going to be a tremendous amount of context missing. Now, that being said, every group, every age range gets more and more comfortable with technology. It's a little bit morbid, but I remember speaking to somebody, and this has got to be, gosh, just search engine strategies. So it's going to be early 2000s, mid 2000s somewhere, but he wrote a book and I forget the author. I think it was called Against the Machine. And he had an equation that was pretty amazing. And the equation said, anytime you combine anonymity with an audience, you get an asshole. And that's kind of what social media in many ways has created is this effect of, I can say whatever I want with no accountability. Like Mike Tyson talked about it all the time. You know, back in my day, if you said any of that stuff, you get punched in the mouth. That was a, a guardrail against people overcorrecting and oversharing. Social media has removed that and generations today are very comfortable with it and quite frankly are affected by it. Like you're watching high school and college stage kids make life decisions based on strangers on the internet for likes and shares and whatever else. So a little bit scary, but they've kind of gotten comfortable with assigning credibility to that. So is it possible that two or three generations from now, somebody will sit down in front of a robot, listen to that robot, feel like that robot gets them, you know, like the movie Her when he falls in love with his phone? It's totally possible, but I think you've got to have multiple generations that grow up and get comfortable with AI being an entity versus AI being my computer. You know, like, like AI today is sort of viewed as a smarter Google search. It's not viewed as a replacement for your doctor, for your psychologist, for your lover, for any of those things. Could it change? Maybe, but I think you got at least two or three generations before somebody gets comfortable enough to be vulnerable with a robot that could put it online at any time. True. I th I think that the time frame might be a little bit less because, you know, we're going to, the next generation of children who are going to be born in the next 10 to 20 years, well, I guess that's one generation approximately that, but I think, you know, it's like, you know, your, your daughter, right, who grew up with a phone. We didn't grow up with phones. We didn't grow up with the internet, right? You and I didn't, but she, she has, and she doesn't even understand what it's like not to, not to live in a world like that. So I, I think I, where I, it gets to be, I think where it gets to be challenging though, is like, I think we as a society, we always overestimate the speed of progress and we underestimate all of the impediments to that progress. Like you probably remember as I do by year 2000, we were all supposed to be in flying cars. We barely have electric cars. So like when you factor in the speed that technology unchecked could advance, it might happen a lot faster. But when you consider all of the regulatory bodies that exist, all of the companies that exist that have plenty of resources that are dependent on that change not taking place, I would be in the camp of, I think it will happen faster than I would like it to, but I don't think it's going to happen anywhere near as fast as right now in the gold rush days of everyone's like, oh my gosh, AI is going to take our jobs. What do we do? Like, I mean, I just don't see it. I might be wrong. And by the way, timestamp this, if I'm wrong, I owe everyone drinks. Yeah, because by the way, if I am wrong and it does that, we're going to need the drinks. We're going to need the drinks then, you know, in a year on, on June 12th, 2024, when the bots have taken over. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think that that's going to be the case in a year. But I do think that, especially in the marketing industry, I think that's the first one probably to be impacted. And, you know, and you know a lot about the marketing industry as, as well as I do is I think there's I mean, and just looking at my own agency now how that might change in, in the very near future, maybe three to five years where right now, yeah, we have graphic designers, but then can AI be creative and create a brand and create, I mean, there's already. Well, have you seen, have you seen the jokes from all the designers that it's like, you know, 
hey, everybody, don't worry for AI to take our jobs. It means that human beings need to be able to write a creative brief correctly. We're safe. Like it, it's the joke that it's like, could AI do it? Yes. What will the output look like? And so I, I totally agree with you that I think what what AI will hopefully do, and, and if I had a magic wand and was wishing, I hope AI makes marketing better. I hope AI removes the feeling that good enough is good enough, that you're you're putting out bad content that's keyword loaded, that's optimized for SEO, but a human being reading it doesn't give a shit. That should go away. So hopefully AI brings about marketing that is just flat out better and and gets rid of the the rote work, the drudgery, the, the elements that just don't really have a lot of value add to them. I would love to see that happen. I think I agree. I think that's going to be the first iteration. It's just going to be marketing is going to be better without, you know, without us getting rid of people yet. As as you know, so let's say graphic designers or video editors, but I think, you know, and is that your prediction for the future? I know we talked about challenges, but is what do you see for your industry or for just we can talk about self-driving cars or terraforming Mars, whatever you think is uh, whatever is top of mind to you. So for me, the challenge to our industry would definitely definitely be if somehow advancements were able to be done without requiring effort. So our industry exists to get people from current state to desired state with as little friction or brain damage as possible. The only reason you're buying a course or you're buying an educational experience is because that is meant to shortcut that journey. Whatever the pitfalls are, you're going to avoid them. Whatever the fastest ways to achieve it, you're going to know them. It still is on you to do the work. So if Elon Musk's implantable microchip happens and we end up in this matrix you know, universe where like you just plug in and learn Kung Fu in 15 minutes because they downloaded it, that's probably going to make course sales very challenging. However, it's still going to require somebody to make that Kung Fu thing that you're going to get. So I do see there being adaptations, whether it be, you know, so like right now, everybody's on, you know, Ozempic or Wagovia or whatever, whatever the peptides are that, you know, it's kind of like stapling your stomach without stapling your stomach and everyone's losing weight super, super fast. Like, you might not be as apt to buy a weight loss course if there's a pharmaceutical intervention that works and is effortless. And, you know, yeah, whenever I want to be in shape, boop, take the pill, you know, I'm in shape for a week, go to the beach. I could see advancements like that making learning a little bit more difficult as far as providing a path that gives you that shortcut, gives you that advantage. Uh, I still think that even in those circumstances, there's going to be human beings that have to create the things that replace the education. But those would be the things for me that, you know, those advancements have pretty impactful thing. Now, the only areas that I think might not change as much are the inner game elements. You know, at the end of the day, until human beings are replaced by cyborg-esque things, there's always going to be a mental game to life. There's going to be how your brain works, how you train your brain, all of those aspects of it. That's the area that I don't know yet that AI is is diagnostic enough or prescriptive enough that it looks like a potential threat. But to your point, it'll probably eventually get there. But yeah, for me, it would be what are those advancements that once they happen will make education or effort unnecessary because education and effort are able to be downloaded instantaneously. Right. Or the just... Well, I guess that there's two things, right? Education and effort, which, yes, if that still exists, I think somebody will still need to make the Kung Fu, whatever program, but it will be probably one or two people instead of, you know, right now there's maybe thousands of people who are doing that. 
But I think also maybe the other thing that might change is like people not wanting to learn. I feel like that's almost kind of- Oh, I I think the vast majority of the world today doesn't want to learn. There's no doubt about that. You know, as far as a generation that's expecting maximum output for minimum effort, I mean, we've all got that in spades. That, you know, I don't think we've ever had a time in history or a generation that it is easier to stand out by just doing slightly above the bare minimum. I mean, when quiet quitting has become a trend in the workplace, just doing the work makes you look exemplary. So I think it's it's definitely something where education and the effort required is, is getting harder and harder. But as I look at where that leaves us, I think that there is going to be a bit of a renaissance of effort and education because I think that there there's always, and there's a very good book written on this by Roy Williams called The Pendulum Theory. And the pendulum theory basically postulates that there's an 80-year process where it starts with a, a me cycle and then moves to a we cycle over a 40-year period and then moves back to a, a me cycle over the course of the next 40 years. And so you've got this ebb and flow of a me cycle where it's like, wow, we really took individual focus and individual achievement too far. You know, let's swing that back. And then you end up in a we cycle, which at the peak begins to feel like indentured servitude, that I'm not even entitled to my own success, my own accomplishments, all of the policies, everything is just, you know, to punish the achievement. And the happiest times in society are when it's right in that middle of me and we, and there's a healthy balance. And I think that the book really lines it out well, that we're going to be trending back towards an era of achievement, because also the book talks about Eastern and Western societies operating differently. So right now, if you look at China, China is at the peak of a me cycle, of an achievement-oriented cycle. The United States is at the peak of a we cycle and how we adapt and move through that. So I think achievement and effort is going to come back in vogue. I think that rather than bragging about you know how much time we're taking off and how little we're actually doing, I think we're going to get back into innovation mode. I certainly hope so. But I do agree with you. You know, the effort side is is very much at a premium today. Um, I've never heard of that pendulum cycle. But yeah, the pendulum theory. theory. It's written by Roy Williams and Michael Drew. Great book. It's uh, roughly 3,000 years of history overlaid on this 80-year cycle. And they use the most popular songs, the most popular businesses, like all of the societal indicators of where we are. It's a it's a provocative read. It gives me a lot of hope for the future because on the days where I'm like, oh my gosh, is anyone going to want to do anything anymore? Then it's like, yeah, it'll come back. The AIs are going to do it all for us. I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, just, I didn't want to end on a, a negative note where we are like, People no, I, I the thing I think the thing I think AI is going to do that a lot of people are really not ready for like it's the conversation nobody's having is what happens to society when between AI and robotics a very significant segment of our labor force is displaced. And I think that regardless of where you sit, and again, I I am very apolitical. I just, you know, I think the whole system's broken. But when you look at what will happen, Whether you believe in universal basic income or not, whether you believe in socialism, believe in capitalism, whatever it is, we've got 7 billion people. And if a whole lot of them become robots and AI powered, you know, working, what do you do? So I think we are as a society looking at a process that will fundamentally change what work looks like. And uh, I think that for me, what that means for creators, what that means for entertainment, what that means for art, what that means for music, what that means for all of those things, I think is pretty exciting. But I also see, you know, tremendous threats on as a society, what do we do when, you know, 
entire industries are displaced. That's the that's the question that I don't think enough people are talking about. So we have discussed this on our podcast before with other guests, and that has actually come up quite a bit as to what does the future of work look like? We actually had one guest who talked about like, you know, self-driving cars and what that will do to the trucking industry, right? Initial step, right? Because trucking is kind of like the one, the first one to go because there's a lot of truckers out there, right? And then if they're all being replaced by self-driving trucks, then it's going to, of course, be, have an impact. But I would love to hear your thoughts on what does the future of work look like? I actually think the future of work is going to look a lot like the previous generation of work. I think that there was what, in my opinion, is a bit of an aberration during COVID where there was this tremendous popularization of work from home. I think if you were to ask employers and employers were to be really honest, you know, not provide any virtue signaling answers, the reality of it is in-person work was better. It was better for creativity. It was better for brainstorming. Like unless you have a position in a company that is so managed by metrics that you can simply watch dials and it requires nothing else, no motivation, no creativity, no team involvement, maybe those could be virtual, but those would also be ones that will probably be very quickly replaced by machines that don't need to be anywhere. But I think that for me, there was a season that I think was a little bit too much, you know, looking at the industrial era and the burden of work that was placed on people, probably a bit of an overcorrection. But I also think this idea of I should only work in my pajamas from home, I think is largely a tail wagging the dog concept brought about by the technorati that it's like, oh, well, I'm an engineer and I can work from home in my pajamas. So everyone should be able to work from home in their pajamas. I just don't know that that's really the way that life works or the way that we do our best work. And I think that's why you're seeing companies that are brave enough to say, you got to come back. They're doing well. And I think they're going to be ahead of the companies that are still kind of capitulating to, well, no, you know, work from anywhere, work whenever you want, however you want, blah, 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 blah. To me, that's just not the future of work. So if I were to look at the future of work, I believe that it's going to be more hybrid. I don't think it will be 100% back to in-person, but I do think it will be a hybrid environment of in-person work for strategic planning, team involvement, creative capacities, things that need to be done that way. Those are going to come back. I think that there will be some flex days because no matter what your position is, there are probably days that you don't need to be there in person and people should have that flexibility. And I think it's very helpful. I think that also some of the experiments being done on a four-day work week are pretty promising. I think it's very much the, um, I don't know if it's Parkinson's law. I think it's Parkinson's where the time necessary to complete a task will swell to the time allotted. The four-day work week is very indicative of that. You know, if you tell a team member, hey, guess what? If you get it done in four days, you got your fifth day off, man, watch everybody work to make sure they get that fifth day off. So I see a lot more flexibility, a lot more hybrid environments, maybe a shortened work week. All of those things I, I see coming online pretty significantly. I do think also there's going to be a need for passion. Today, I think we are seeing that any company that doesn't have a point of view, a, a reason for existence, raison d'entre, or however you say it, if you don't have it, you're going to have a really hard time having employees want to join your team. That if it's just another job, well, then your only option is to overcompensate them, which isn't good for your margins, isn't good for your business. So if you're in a business that doesn't have a why, that doesn't have a reason for doing what it's doing, you're going to have a really hard time getting anyone engaged or wanting to do it. So I think that the necess necessity of purpose is going to be incredibly important. And really providing a working environment that people enjoy, you know, finding the things that actually move the needle, not just, you know, jumping into the Silicon Valley benefits train, 
which I don't really think has helped that much. So those would be some of my commentaries on, on the future of work. I also believe we're going to see a major, major renaissance of start small, stay small. I think entrepreneurship is going to be hugely important. So you're going to see more and more people choose to do their own thing and do their own thing in a way where they are able to engineer the life that they want. So whether that is you know, side hustles, whether that is more of a, a gig-based approach of, hey, I'm going to work for three months, take a month off, whether it's I'm going to choose career paths that give me flexibility to be a digital nomad, whatever it happens to be. I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of alternative career paths come about because the days of people just wanting to jump into enterprise rent-a-car and, you know, go to their management school process, probably not that hot. You know, being a cog in a machine for a giant company, probably not that interesting. And I think people are going to really seek a lot more fulfillment from jobs where previously people were willing to just, hey, it's work. I'm going to do the work. Those are those are days I think are behind us as well. Wow. We've covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> the future of work, the what AI is going to bring or maybe not bring in the future. But this was great. Thank you so much for being here. You clearly have done this a lot, as I can tell. <laughs> Actually, not not nearly as much as you'd think. This uh, this podcast thing is is new for me. I mean, even trying to figure out how to like have a, you know, like a studio and lighting so, you know, I don't look like I'm, you know, wasting away or, or totally rotund. It's, it's not easy. Like, I, you know, everyone that does this super effortlessly, I'm always impressed by. I'm like, how did, how did this, you know, happen for you? Like this for me is like, it's hard. Well, it's great. I mean, you have the mic, you have the, the lighting. Yeah, it, it's half the battle. And then the other half is just, you know, speaking intelligently, which you have been doing quite well. So fingers um, crossed. Thank you so much for being here. Our last question is, how can our audience get in touch with you or your company? Oh, thank you so much. Well, currently there is no company, but I would say, depending on when you hear this, jcron.com, maybe live, jcron.com. If it's not, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm going to have my book coming out next month called The Billion Dollar Bullseye, How to Grow as Big as You Want, As Fast as You Want, and Exit If You Want on Your Terms. Really looking forward to getting that out there. It's going to be something that I'm just going to completely give away. It's kind of my goal of trying to be an accessible mentor for people that may be in the position I was in, may not be in YPO, may not be in those kind of groups. So just wanting to have something out there that, you know, whoever finds it, it's a predictable roadmap for business. So looking forward to releasing that as well. But you can find me any of those places. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jay Cron. This was a really good conversation. And thank you for being here. You got it, Gene. Thank you as well.